podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast. It is Thursday, the 6th of May, and we are brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, a virtual privacy network, allows you to go online, change your location, access American Netflix, use Now TV outside the UK, get a Peacock account if you want to do things like that. Also keeps your data safe online, which is obviously very important. And you can check out their services at libertyshield.com and use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft. That's a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks, the Champions League final is set. It will be Manchester City versus Chelsea. Chelsea beat Real Madrid 2-0 last night. Timo Werner with the first. Mason Mount with a late second. A thoroughly deserved victory for Chelsea, I thought. Thomas Tuchel got his tactics absolutely spot on. I thought the entire team performed very, very well. Havertz, to me, was the best player on the pitch. I thought he was exceptional. His development in the last few months under Tuchel has been exceptional. He is going to be a real problem for Premier League teams next season. He has eight goals and eight assists this season. In just over 2,200 minutes, he is a superstar in the making. It took him some time to settle in. Didn't help that he was been managed by a PE teacher. But now that he is settled, now that he is happy, you can just see he looks a different player. Timo Werner next to him got his goal. He couldn't really miss, but played well. Thought his movement was very good. His link-up play was very good. He needs to work on his finishing. We all know that. We've seen the chances he's missed this season. But everything else is coming along very, very well for Timo Werner. I thought Mason Mount was was really good and obviously got his goal that he that he deserved for the performance he put in. But special mention to N'Golo Kante. Because there's times you can watch him and he doesn't look like he's the same player he was two, three years ago. And then there's times you watch him like last night, where he just looks unstoppable. Like a force of nature. And last night he ran Real Madrid's midfield off the pitch. Tony Cruz, Luka Modric, Casemiro, they didn't get a chance to settle on the ball because Kante was just all over them, pressuring them, hounding them, snapping at their heels. A brilliant midfield performance. The defence stood solid. And again, credit goes to Thomas Tuchel. The way he sets his defence up is... Among the very best in world football. He's a very, very good tactician. Um, I think it's Carlin Carpenter is the guy's name. He's a video analyst that works for Statsbomb. An American chap. Really nice guy. He's done a couple of great threads on Twitter about Tuchel's defensive setup. Well worth your time going to read them. I think it's Carlin. 
it's, it's definitely Carpenter. I think it's Carlin Carpenter. Apologies if it's not, but he is very, very good at what he does, just like Thomas Tuchel. Tuchel completely outmanaged Zinedine Zidane in both legs. I thought Zidane got his team selection wrong last night. Brought back in Sergio Ramos. Ramos had himself a stinker. Absolutely shocking. Absolutely shocking. What on earth was he doing getting that close to Werner for the first goal? That far out of position, that close to his man. Dreadful defending. Like, you wouldn't see it in under-18s football. Um, Massively overrated as a defender his entire career because he played in great teams. He has become a great leader. He's a scorer of big goals. But as a defender, purely as a defender, he's incredibly error-prone. He's so rash. He's no positional sense. For years, he got away with things because he was either playing right back and he had centre-backs to cover for him, or he just had the speed and athleticism to recover his own mistakes. He'd do big flashy tackles for the cameras that didn't need to be made. He'd score a goal, and people would forget all about the defensive mistakes that he'd make. Last night, there's no forgetting about how bad he was. Truly dreadful. Not the worst Real player on the pitch, though. That honour goes to Eden Hazard, who it just looks like he's in the Gareth Bale club of not really caring about football anymore. Um, and at least Bale turns it on every so often and gives you flashes of what made him great. Hazard has been dreadful since joining Real Madrid. I know he's had injuries, but he turned up out of shape when he joined them, and he's never really gotten back into shape. Uh Awful performance last night. And then after the game, he was seen not celebrating, that's the wrong word, but he was seen sort of laughing and joking with the Chelsea players as as they celebrated. That has not gone down well at Real Madrid TV, who are strangely fronted by a very old man, which is unusual for a club TV channel. Uh, They took exception to Hazard laughing and joking with the Chelsea players. Look, he he spent, what, eight, nine years there? He's got a lot of close ties to Chelsea. So it's understandable that he still has those friendships. There's a lot of players there that he went through an awful lot with. Players like Kante, like Aspilicueta. It, it's natural for him to maintain those friendships. Yes, it's not a good look. Yes, you'd be furious if it was your club, but Real Madrid TV went right in on them last night, and I thought it was just a little bit, a little bit over the top um, by the Count Dracula lookalike to attack him in that way. And and deem him another Bale. Well, Bale won you four Champions League, so if he's another Bale, well, you've got good success to come. Real are very privileged, though they believe that this is their tournament; they should win it every year. They're out. It is Chelsea versus City. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. It's all English, obviously. It's Pep versus Tuchel, two of the best tacticians in the world. We've just seen it in an FA Cup semi-final. We're about to see it in the Premier League this weekend. So lots of narratives to go around that one. Dry run for the Champions League final. Potentially, you know, revenge for City because Chelsea ruined their quadruple hopes. I don't think Guardiola will want Tuchel to have two victories in a row over him because that will help Tuchel build confidence. So I think Pep will be motivated to win this game as well. 
So yeah, the Champions League final will be Manchester City versus Chelsea. Now at the moment it's scheduled to take place in Istanbul. And with the greatest of respect, it's absolutely pointless to have the game in Istanbul. There's going to be 25,000 people at the final, allegedly. 9,000 of whom will be fans. 4,500 from each club. So again, you know, the good guys won, remember. Only 16,000 uh, tickets going to UEFA to give to their, their pals. But this game shouldn't be played in Turkey. With the travel restrictions that are in place, with the fact that we are still in the middle of a pandemic, we may be coming out the other side of it, but we're still right here. It doesn't make sense to have these two teams travel to Turkey to play a game of football. Play this game in England. Now, Wembley is booked that weekend for the playoffs. But it doesn't need to be played at Wembley, because if there's only going to be 25,000, you can always lower that number a little bit as well. You can play it at the Tottenham Stadium. Why not just use the Tottenham Stadium for the Champions League final? It's brand new, it's shiny, it's a phenomenal looking structure. I think the best thing to do would be to hold the Champions League final in the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. You could move the playoffs to the Tottenham Stadium either. But one way or another, this game should take place in England. It is a nonsense to have these teams and and 4,500 fans from each... And you know well that more than 4,500 from each will go as well. So you're going to have probably double that number will land. So that's 20,000 people leaving the UK to go to this game and bringing back God knows what strain of COVID and then starting a big problem all over again. So play the game in the UK. It'll just be easier for everybody. It's easier for the clubs as well. I would say the same uh, with the Europa League. Obviously, United and Arsenal are in the Europa League semi-finals. United look as good as through. Uh, 6-2 win in the first leg. Not a bad way to go about things. Um, Arsenal 2-1 down after the first leg against Villarreal. But they're at home in the second leg. Those games are tonight, the second legs of those Rome at home to United, Arsenal home to Villarreal. If it's an all-English affair, again, I think it has to be played in the UK. It's currently set to be played in Gdansk. Meaningless. Get the game back into England. Limit the travel. There's 43,000 people can fit into that stadium in Gdansk. Played at Villa Park. Split the difference between London and Manchester. Played at Villa Park. Just be easier for everybody. Um, yeah, so congratulations to Chelsea. Well deserved. And um, we look forward to that final. I did just want to go back a day to Man City getting into the final, beating PSG. And some comments that Jamie Carragher made uh, regarding Ruben Diaz, um, he said that right right now Diaz is as good as Van Dyke. Now I assume he means when Van Dyke is fit, not as Van Dyke currently is with a uh, recovering ACL tear. But I mean, that's nonsense. There's absolutely no comparison. 
Diaz makes mistakes. Diaz is quite slow. Diaz is not on the level of Van Dijk. He's having a very, very good season. But Carragher went on to claim he should be player of the year. He hasn't even been City's best player this year. This is Carragher, though, who watches about four games of each team per season. This is the guy who picked Dejan Lovren in his team of the year once, despite the fact he was dreadful for the second half of a season when he was at Southampton. Once Wanyama got hurt, Lovren fell apart. He was good in the first couple of months, fooled people like Carragher and Neville, who don't watch a lot of football outside of what they've been paid to watch. And, yeah, it's the same thing with Diaz. He's not the player of the year. He's not City's player of the year. Ilkay Gundogan is City's be- has been City's best player across the season. Kevin De Bruyne a close second. And then you can start getting into a debate between Jao Canseo and Ruben Diaz. But it is very close between those two. I think you'd also do well to consider that Rodri should be in that mix. Carragher said that the impact Diaz has had on City is the same as the impact Van Dijk had on Liverpool. Well, Liverpool were struggling to finish fourth before signing Van Dijk. They were a decent team. And they became a great team. Back-to-back Champions League finals. Second place with 97 points. Winning a title with 99. That's the transformation that Van Dijk caused at Liverpool. From a team that leaked goals to a team that didn't concede any. Diaz joined a team that had had one disappointing season in which they still won some silverware. Prior to that, had won back-to-back league titles. Has he improved them? Yes. But he didn't take an average team or a decent team and make them great. He took a very, very good team and made them a, a bit better. I mean, this season is weird because of no fans, because most teams have been very poor. City are a better team than they were two years ago. But you also have to factor in that Rodri has made a massive difference. That Canseo has made a massive difference. It's not just about Ruben Diaz. City's defensive record two years ago and the year before, and three years ago were very, very good. So under Pep, they've been a good defensive team. Pep's Bayern were a good defensive team. Pep's Barcelona were a good defensive team. Pep's system makes defenders look very, very good. Nicolas Otamendi was part of a team that got 100 points in the league. Nicolas Otamendi, who Carragher disparaged multiple times. Diaz is very, very good. He's not one of the best centre-backs in the world. Not yet. This is the first season he's played like this. And remember, when he was signed, I said, this is a really good signing. Loads of other people said, oh, that's a big overpay. Oh, that's a big gamble. 
So those people had watched him play and deemed him to be good, not great. I knew he was going to be really good because I'd seen him for Benfica, but I didn't think it would be this quick. I didn't think he'd level up this quickly. He was good at Benfica with all the signs of being very good. He has made that jump to very good straight away. But it's not like he was playing like this last season, the year before. To be one of the best defenders in the world, you have to do it for multiple years. Let's give Ruben Diaz a chance to develop and not immediately push him into a conversation that he doesn't belong in. He's not on Van Dijk's level. He's not on the level of Marquinhos. He's not on the level of Varane or Skriniar. He's just not on that level yet. He's not on the level of Koulibaly. He may get there, but he's not there yet. He's a very good defender who made a very, very good team slightly better. Van Dijk took a decent team and made them great. The difference between him and Van Dijk is... It's huge. He's playing with £50 million players all around him. Van Dijk is playing with a guy who was relegated with Hull. A young defender who came from Charlton for £7 million, An academy graduate. And if it's not the guy from Charlton, it's the guy that came from Chalca on a free. Mendy's got Laporte, or Diaz has got Laporte, he's got Stones, he's got Mendy and Walker and Canseo, Aki. Big money defenders everywhere at City. It rains tenors at City when they go and try and sign defenders. He's got one of the world's most expensive goalkeepers behind him. He's got the world's most expensive defensive midfielder in front of him. They should be great defensively. Look how much money they've spent. If they weren't, you'd have to sack everybody. It's Carragher talking rubbish again. And then getting salty because people called him out for it on social media, searching his own name. A little bit sad, to be quite honest, that he's doing that. But it is what it is. Uh, he should be more concerned about the actions of the man who's verbalizing his autobiography. Um, we move. We move. Okay, so it is Thursday. We will jump into Twitter questions. But first, we'll take a quick break. And then we'll come back. Right. Welcome back. We have quite a few questions by the looks of things. Um, so, from Lewis Phillips, um, if the Lions were to happen in football, where would they tour? I'd go for Argentina, Brazil, and a third, I'm not sure. This is a great question. And I, I have often thought about this. If there was a, a football equivalent of the British and Irish Lions. Now, I don't know that there'd be many Irish Lions involved, um, given the state of our national team. But where would they tour? Brazil is an obvious one. Yes, absolutely. That would have to happen. Argentina's a great one as well. The third is interesting. I mean, you'd probably have to go somewhere in Europe, wouldn't you? you'd probably have to look at France, Spain, or Germany. Germany would be the one that makes sense, traditional rivals to England. But it is a great idea. Maybe they just do two. Maybe they rotate between Brazil and Argentina. 
to make it that longer trip. None of the African countries would really make sense. I don't think there's, a, there's a, an African country strong enough right now who would have the infrastructure to do it. I mean, Nigeria are getting there. That's a very strong national team they're building, but I don't know if there will be competitive games outside of the, the games against the national team. I suppose you could do Russia. I mean, Russia could be fun. Russia might be the best one. Play against the likes of Zenith, Spartak, CSKA, Locomotive Moscow, Ruben Kazan, Krasnodar, and then three games against the national team. Russia is probably the best option. It's probably a country that a lot of players wouldn't get to visit or wouldn't choose to visit. So Russia would be the one for me that would make sense if you're doing a third. But I would be totally on board with it being Brazil, one tour, Argentina, the next. Uh, PR of Alphastan asks, who is more suitable as a Ginny Wijnaldum replacement for Liverpool, Zambo Nguisa or Yves Basima? Do Liverpool need a more attack-minded midfielder to bring more goals and assists? Is it time for system change at Liverpool? So to answer those questions in reverse, I think it is time for system change or shape change. The system is fine. The shape is what's wrong. Um, do Liverpool need a more attack-minded midfielder to bring goals and assists? I would argue they do. But I think you can do that by changing the shape and maybe getting another wide player in a moving Salah more central. Um, I think the issue is if you sign a goal-scoring midfielder, Klopp will just turn them into a workhorse. And who is more suitable as a Wijnaldum replacement? I would say Yves Basima is more of a like-for-like -like replacement. I think Zambo is the better player. But I think Yves Basima makes more sense to replace Wijnaldum. He never gets hurt. He's really good defensively. He's an intelligent player. He's good on the ball. I think he's a bit more aggressive than Ginny. Um, he's a bit more progressive than Ginny. Now, Klopp may work that out of him, as he has done with other midfielders. But Yves Basima is the one that seems to make the most sense. And he does seem like the most likely target for Liverpool. Um, right. Uh, Footy, Scribblers, Footy, Footy Scribblers asks, What do you think of Iheanacho's run of form? And if you're Leicester, what type of striker are you looking to recruit this summer? I think it's been fantastic. I think we're finally starting to see the player that he threatened to be when he was back at Manchester City. I still like the idea of Odson Edward because he can play on his own. He can play in a two. I think he could play with the Inacho. You could play one up, one off with either playing off. You could play with Vardy. I think he still makes the most sense for them. I haven't seen anyone else linked that makes as much sense. If Alfredo Morales wasn't a lunatic, he might be a good option as a direct Vardy replacement because he is that type of pressing number nine who runs the channels, uses his pace, got an aggressive nature to him. Um, the other option, and I, I don't know if this would be another option because I don't know if if he'd want to move or if the club would have any interest in him. Um, but when I was thinking about potential signings for Leicester a few weeks ago, Josef Martinez of Atlanta United in the MLS 
is one that would make sense as a, as a sort of Vardy replacement. His goal-scoring record in MLS has been incredible. In his first three seasons there, he scored 19 and 20, 31 and 34, and 27 and 29. Now, he tore his ACL, missed all of last season. He has just returned. He hasn't looked himself yet. But when he's on, he is a sensational goal scorer. Um, he could be one worth considering. Dave O'Donovan, I don't think it ever happens, but what's your opinion on Liverpool maybe adopting a, back, a three at the back formation? Kanate, Virgil and Quebec is the back three. Trent and Robertson as wing-backs either side of Fabinho and Thiago as a double pivot and a front three of Salah, Mane and a new number nine. I do love it. I love a back three. Um, I would say I think you would need to buy a a left-footer. I think you have to have a left-footed centre-back in a back three just for the proper balance of things. I just think it makes it easier. I'd also say that by doing that then you push either Quebec, it would be Quebec, into a depth role, which is great because now you have four centre-backs for three positions. You've also got Joe Gomez, who I think would be best suited to a back three anyway. Um, and then you could keep, say, Ben Davies as, as the backup left-sided one. So you'd have six centre-backs for three positions. I would love to see it. I don't think Klopp would ever do it. I think it would suit Trent and Robertson. It would suit Fabinho and Thiago. It would suit Salah and Mane. And like like Dave says, I would go for a new number nine. Um, I think there's options out there. It could be that Salah becomes the nine and you bring in another kind of wide attacker. But I would be in favour of it, personally. I, I love back threes. I, I think three at the back is just the perfect way to play football. Um, Andy the Red 83, talk about how overrated Ramos is for the whole pod, and I'll pay you. I genuinely could. I genuinely could spend the whole podcast talking about how, how overrated he is. Like, I see that guy's name thrown into conversations with Maldini and Nesta and Baresi. And I just think, what an incredible insult to those amazing defenders. Like, he's not even the best Real Madrid centre-back of all time. Fernando Hierro was infinitely better. Manolo Sanchez was infinitely better as a defender than Sergio Ramos. Then you factor in people like Carlos Puyol who carried him for years in the national team. And yet people put his name in these conversations with the all-time greats. The guy's had nearly 30 red cards in his career. How are you going to be a great defender and get sent off that many times? An absolute fraud of a player. Big goals, big tackles for the camera. Fools a lot of people. Great leader, no question. Superb mentality. Incredible commitment to the game. But as a defender... He's closer to Dejan Lovren than he is to Maldini, Nesta and Baresi. And I can insult him no more without getting sued. Um, 
Vinyl Maniac 1964. What is the bigger call? Benching Keppa and replacing him with Mendy or sacking a club legend like Lampard? Seems like Chelsea bought the success but made big calls along the way. They, I mean, they have. They've made big calls. They've made big decisions and they've gotten most of them right. Look at Abramovich's tenure as owner of Chelsea. Five league titles. Five, sorry, eight domestic cups. Five FA, three league cups. A Champions League, two Europa Leagues. They're in a Champions League final. They're in another FA Cup final. I mean, in 18 years, that is great success. And he has done it by making big decisions. He has done it by never getting too attached to players or managers, specifically managers. Managers work for Chelsea and know that if I do not perform, they will get rid of me. That is part and parcel of the agreement that you enter when you sign on to be Chelsea manager. Is that if you don't perform, if you don't bring success, you're gone. Even if you do bring success, you could be gone. Carlo Ancelotti won a double, they sacked him a year later. Antonio Conte won the league, they sacked him a year later. Sarri won the Europa League, they sacked him. Roberto Di Matteo won the Champions League, they sacked him four months later. Benitez won the Europa League, sacked him. Like, they, they don't get hung up on fickle things. Liverpool fans, if you win a cup for Liverpool, they'll keep you forever. You go a season without success at Chelsea, it doesn't matter what you've done. Chelsea's very much what have you done for me lately. And with the success they've had, it's it's hard to argue that it hasn't worked for them. I think the bigger call is sacking Lampard, like you say, club legend. I think everybody at this point had gotten to, to realise that Kepa just he wasn't it. It wasn't going to work with him. Something had gone wrong, he was he was just broken. And unfortunately, that's it. He's out. Mendy's in. He's come in and played in the FA Cup, and he's done quite well. And maybe they're going to rebuild him slowly, take him out of the out of the firing line a little bit. But sacking Lampard is the big call. Club legend, the darling of Sky. We even saw idiots from Sky last night try and give Lampard credit for Chelsea getting to a Champions League final. Lampard took Chelsea backwards for eighteen months, nearly ruined Kai Havertz and Timo Werner. Was taking them nowhere. They were mid table and dropping. Simeone would have just eaten them alive in the Champions League. Tuchel's taken over. They're going to get top four. They're in the Champions League final. They're in the FA Cup final. That was the big decision and it has paid off massively. Um, MTUSA, if you can take a concept from American sports to implement in European football, what would you do? And what's something from football you would implement in an American sport? I'd be curious to see how promotion and relegation would work in one of the big American sports. I just would be interested to see how it would work, how teams would take to it. Like, you can't look at the, at the NBA and say that everybody's on equal footing. Like, there's clearly a good old bunch of teams that just don't really belong at the same table as the rest. If we have a look at the standings at the moment, in the Eastern Conference, you've got the Detroit Pistons, the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Orlando Magic. They're all dreadful. 
The three of them are dreadful. The Bulls are not very good. The Raptors are bad this season, but they have been great in the past and they only won the title a couple of years ago. But the Wizards just above them are generally fairly poor year after year. They they might sneak into the playoffs every so often. Um, I think they've had home court advantage in one playoff series in like 30 years or something like that. So say take the Wizards, the Bulls, the Magic, the Cavaliers and the Pistons. All of whom are generally dreadful. The Cavaliers had LeBron and they were great. But outside of the LeBron years, that's been a tragic franchise. The Magic, great with Shaq and Penny back in the day. Really good team with uh, Dwight Howard, understand Van Gundy. But otherwise, tragic. The Pistons, obviously, the bad boys were great. They had that incredible team in the in the 2000s with Chauncey Billups and Rip Hamilton and Tayshaun Prince and the Wallaces. But generally, there's a bit of a morass around them. And then the Bulls have been tragic, basically, since Jordan, other than the couple of years with uh, with Thibodeau when he had Derrick Rose, Jimmy Butler and that team. So those teams, take those five teams. And then in the West, the Rockets, they were obviously, they were great back in the 90s with Hakeem. They had a good team with Tracy McGrady and Yao Ming, and they had a great team with James Harden, but they never win other than with that Hakeem Olajuwon team. You take them, take the Timberwolves, because we suck every year. Uh, I would say take the Kings for certain, awful, just year after year, awful. Oklahoma I mean, they were the Sonics. Obviously, they were good in the 70s. They had that good team, a really good team in the 90s with Gary Payton and Sean Kemp. And then they had that great team when they moved to Oklahoma City with Kevin Durant, James Harden, Russell Westbrook, Serge Ibaka. But I would take them because they're a smaller franchise. And I would take the Pelicans who just can't get out of their own way. And then I need one more. No, I don't. I'll take those five. The Pelicans, the Kings... The Thunder, the Thunder, the Timberwolves and the Rockets. So I'd take those 10 teams and I would relegate them and put them in Division 2. And the other 20 teams then, they're fine. They can stay as they are. Um, make the 10 teams play each other however many times. Top 2 get promoted, bottom 2 of the rest, down you go. So if you suck, there's no... We're not we're not rewarding tanking anymore. If you suck, you're out. You're dropping down a division. Your money's going to suffer. You could bulk up that 10-man second division by bringing in some of the bigger G League teams or, you know, the G League Ignite, whatever you want to do. I think promotion relegation would just be interesting, it, it, even just as, a, as an experiment. As for something from... The US that would be beneficial. I do think a salary cap. The problem is you have to then have a salary floor. Because if you're going to limit how much teams can spend, you have to make it clear that, you know, you can't spend nothing. You can't have one team spending 300 million and one getting by with, you know, 300 million on wages and the other team spending 50 million on wages. You have to have it be competitive. And I don't think that's a possibility. Uh, revenue sharing, I think, would be good. I, th- I, I I like the idea. 
if not a salary cap, maybe we put a luxury tax on things, and that gets spread back into the pool among the others. So, for example, if the if the salary cap, if we had a a limit on how much you could spend, and it was say, I don't know, you could spend two hundred and fifty or three hundred million on salary, but some team paid three hundred and fifty million. Well, then I would say penalize them half so they did have to pay 25 million into a pool and that money would then get redistributed among the other teams in the league i think that would be fair city wouldn't care chelsea wouldn't care united probably wouldn't care liverpool would care um but yeah i think something like that like a luxury tax type of situation will, will be quite interesting um vinyl maniac again do you think Liverpool will be higher on the table if Klopp had committed straight away to Nat Phillips and not played around with the midfield so much? Also, what is wrong with the attack? Right. Nat Phillips is not the answer, but he is better at centre-back than Jordan Henderson. That's absolutely a fact. So I do think if he just played Nat and not played Henderson, Liverpool would have been better off. Obviously, not played Henderson in defence. Play him in midfield where he belongs. I think, I think Liverpool will be better off. I think they will be higher on the table. Uh, what's wrong with the attack? I think Firmino, Firmino's goosed. He, he looked, he was bad last season. He's been terrible this season. He's had a couple of decent games recently. Um, Mane has been bad since October. I do wonder with him if it's like long COVID or something, but who knows? Who knows? It may just be exhaustion. These boys haven't had a break in years. They play every game because Klopp runs them into the ground. And this was the knock on him at Dortmund as well, that he runs players into the ground. So, Maybe we're just seeing a bit of that. Maybe we're seeing the end of a cycle with some of these players. Uh, Callum Perry, how long do you think Conte stays at Inter? And where his it might his next job be? Is he the best manager in the world? I think he's in the top five. I think he's in the top five. I think you've got Pep, Klopp, Simeone, Conte. I mean... If Tuchel wins the Champions League this year, it's going to be really hard to make an argument that he's not the not number five on that list. I would personally go for Allegri right now because he's had more success. But I, 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 even that, I think it's a top four. I think there's four incredible managers in the game right now with Pep, Klopp, Conte, and Simeone. Zidane probably deserves the fifth spot in truth, because he's won three Champions Leagues. But I wouldn't put him on the same level as those other four. I think those other four, if they went up against Zidane, all things being even, I think they'd whoop him as a manager. He annihilates them all as a player, obviously. But as a manager, I just think those four stand on a level away from everybody. How long do I think he stays at Inter? I, I definitely think he'll stay at least another year. He's had a contract then in 2022. It wouldn't surprise me if he found his way to Atletico Madrid and Simeone found his way to Inter. Simeone has been vocal that he would like to manage Inter at some point. Played there, loved it there, he's an idol there. Simeone would not surprise me to Inter. That would open up the Atletico job and I think that would be a job that would suit Conte. He's been clear he wants to manage in Spain. He came quite close to getting the Real Madrid job a few years ago, and this might be his way of giving two fingers to Real. 
he's never going to get the Barca job. He doesn't have the profile for it, you know, in terms of how, how his teams play. But I think at Inter, I think he'd be a success. Um, Moving on. Okay, Harry Fuller, KS. Liverpool are losing every one of their central midfielders. You can keep one and have 150 million to sign the other five replacements to create a first three and a backup three. Ooh. Okay. Um, you keep Fabinho. That's just a no-brainer. You keep the best one. You keep the world-class holding midfielder because they're very hard to find. Um, I would sign Fabian Ruiz from Napoli. I think you'd get him for about 40 million. Probably gets him. And I think as a progressive ball player, I think he would fit really well with Fabinho. I really wanted to say Saul, but I think he'd cost too much. I would go with, with uh, Fabian Ruiz first. And I would go Lorenzo Pellegrini of Roma. And I think I'd get the two of them for about 80 million, maybe 90 million. And then a backup three. I've got six. I'll say 90 million just to be, be safe. Backup midfield three. Um, Florian Newhouse is a player that interests me, but I think he'd be too expensive. I'd be inclined to go Dennis Zakaria. If I could get him for... No, you know what? I'd, I'd go Ubakari Samari from Lille. Bring him in probably 25 to 30 million. Bubakar Kamara, defensive midfielder from Marseille, out of contract in 2022. I reckon you probably get him for about 20 million. So there's, say, 45, leaves me 15. And I want someone a bit progressive. I'll complete the French trio. I'll go with Michael Elise, Reading, not. A natural sentiment feeler, but I think can play as an eight. Really talented player. Has an eight million buyout, allegedly. If that's not true, 15 million would definitely get him. Um, so, Pellegrini, Ruiz, Samare, Kamara, and Elise. I think that's what I would do. If I could. I mean, I don't know how much he'd cost, and I, I would do this instead of bringing in Lise. That young midfielder at Villa, I was talking to someone about him yesterday, Carney, I, I won't pronounce his surname because I'll ruin it, but I spoke to somebody at Villa who's a big Villa fan yesterday, and he is absolutely adamant that this kid is, is Jude Bellingham potential. Maybe you take a gamble on someone like him instead, bring in that young English midfielder, I assume I can keep Curtis. I assume the ones I'm losing are Thiago, Henderson, Wijnaldum, Naby, Milner. I assume I still have Curtis. If not, oh well. Um, no, you know what? I'll go Michael Elise because at least I know what I'm getting with him. So, yeah, that, that'd be my five that I'd bring in. 
Uh, Emmett, a.k.a. Emmett, with City being favourites in the final, what would you say is more possible? United winning their fourth Champions League or City catching United's three? As things stand, City catching United's three. I think if City get one, they'll win a couple more in the next five to ten years. Because the first one's the hardest one to win. Once you get over that hill, once you get that experience, I do think it becomes something more attainable for them. One of the problems they've had is that in those bigger games, that lack of experience of winning those games has caught up with them. They're they're past that now. They're in the final. I think it helps them that they're playing Chelsea, a familiar team. I don't think it will feel as much of an intimidation to play them as it might to play Real or Bayern or PSG or Juve or or Atletico Madrid or Barca in the final. I I think it helps them. Um, I think City can win three before United win a four. Uh, Alison Esk asks, was having a debate with a friend who's an Arsenal fan who thought it was laughable that I said Luis Suarez is a better striker than Thierry Henry. Who would you pick in the prime and who was the better striker between the two? I've always said I think Henri is the, the best player we had in the Premier League. The greatest Premier League era player for me is Thierry Henry. But the best season I've ever seen anyone have in the league was Suarez in 13-14. And I think Suarez, 13-4, I would say Suarez from the start of 2013 until the end of his third season at Barcelona. So that's a four and a half year run. I would say that was at a higher level than what Henri reached at his best level. I would say Suarez was a better number nine. And I would say Suarez was the better overall player. Henri and Suarez together would have been ridiculous. They could have played together and been absolutely sensational. But I would take Suarez over Henri. Henri's probably got him on longevity. Though Suarez was incredible for Ajax. But Henri for Arsenal and then Barca was great. I, I would I would go Suarez. But again, I'm, it may be a little bit of bias there. Adam Hanlon, uh, who's changed his handle to uh, just underscore Adam underscore 30. Your thoughts on Sancho links to Liverpool and what it would mean for the front three. Uh, how do you see our chances of a title or top four next season looking at Chelsea and City sides? And uh, a non-football question, I'll get to that one. So he asks Sancho to Liverpool. I think Sancho is a perfect signing for Liverpool. I think he's exactly what they need. He's a game changer. He is an incredible dribbler, a creative player who scores goals, can do it from either flank. I would be spending all the money on Sancho. I'd push all the chips into the table to get in the middle of the table to get Sancho. Uh, what would it mean for the front three? I think it would mean Salah central and then Sancho and Mane either side of him. That's if it's a fr- if it's a front three, I think that's what it would be. Salah goes central, Sancho and Mane play either side. Um how do you see the chance of a title or top four next season? With Van Dyke back with Kanate looking done it just depends on who else comes in. I think as things stand, definitely top four next season, but a couple of players shy of a title challenge. The City team are, are going to get better. Uh, Chelsea will, will spend in the summer. Now, I, I hope they spend in the right areas and actually fix the weaknesses with the team rather than just 
you know, throwing money at the wall the way they've done in the past. Um, but I do think those are going to be two very, very good teams next season. Um, okay, non-football. Favourite five TV shows ever. You can't say The Wire five times. It's a bit harsh. Uh, well, The Wire is, is, is number one. Um, I would say... In no particular order, The West Wing, Game of Thrones, The Shield, and Rescue Me. Yeah, they'd be my 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 four, and The Wire is number one. Um, you and Mac. One zero zero one asks: Are SOS doing the right thing? Is fan engagement and interaction enough to change the game, or will it be a token gesture from billionaire club owners? Are we missing a trick? Not trying to adjust the uh, Super League to suit and improve the game, oppose UEFA and create something better. So to answer the second question first, yes, yes, we are missing a trick. Not using this as an opportunity for change. This is what I've been saying. This was a real chance to make legitimate change within the game. You didn't have to like the idea of a Super League. You had to like what the Super League represented, which was not stealing football. It was an opportunity to take football back. Sky and BT stole football from you. This was an opportunity to take it back. Some of the proposals were bananas. Some of them were great. Things like limits on agent fees. Only spending 50% or 55% of your income on salaries. Maybe you put a cap on transfers. Things like this would have been super important. And all of it got chucked away. As for our SOS doing the right thing. So SOS, for those who don't know, is Spirit of Shankly, the Supporters Union of Liverpool Football Club. Um, are they doing... Are they doing the right thing? Are they, they are acting in the best interests of fans. So yes, they are doing the right thing. I think the the request for two seats on the board is is silly. You're not going to get two seats on the board. Now it may be that they've asked for two seats in the hope of getting one seat. I'd like I genuinely would like someone to point me to the Premier League club that has a, a fan on the board. Just one club and show me who that club is. Then I would ask the following. So my issue is that SOS said they want two SOS representatives on the board. That doesn't sit right with me. Two fans, whatever. The problem is going to be they're going if if they're made directors. Now, number one, I don't think any fan is qualified to be a director. And if you look at who Liverpool's directors are, it is the owners and the CEO plus Kenny Dogleash. Kenny Dalglish is a non-executive director, which means he does not have voting rights and does not need to be um, consulted on certain matters. So are you asking for fans to be given non-executive seats? In which case, you're saying that those fans should have the same importance as Kenny Dalglish. That doesn't sit right with me. You can have them sit in on the meetings. That's what Chelsea have done. That's a token gesture, and they're only going to sit in on certain meetings. You can have them be a non-executive director. I don't think so, but 
it makes no difference. They still won't be consulted on major issues. Same as Kenny isn't. And the third thing then is you you make them an executive director. And the executive board of Liverpool, again, they're all either shareholders or the CEO. So they're not going to give that to a fan. And even if they did and something went to a vote, how would that fan's vote be decided? Would he vote for himself? Or would he vote based on the views of the entirety of Spirit of Shankly? If he was to vote based on the entirety of Spirit of Shankly, surely then he would have to go back to Spirit of Shankly and its members and say, this is what's up for vote. So now we need to vote on it. And whatever that result is, I will go back and share that with the club. But that puts all of the club's business out in the public domain. And that weakens Liverpool. I don't know how many members Spirit of Shankly has. I've asked. Nobody's been able to tell me. It could be 100,000. It could be 50,000. I genuinely don't know. However many it is, if it's to be a democracy, and if that if those members of the board are to represent the members of Spirit of Shankly, surely no decision can be taken without consulting with the rank-and-file members of Spirit of Shankly, in which case all of the club's private information and private details about negotiations and decisions are getting broadcast to whoever many members there are. That's nonsense. That can't happen. So what is the point then? So if it's not going to be that, then it's one person making a decision. And that person, whether they want to or not, they're going to vote based on their view, not the greater good. Like, for example, if if a Spirit of Shankly member had been on the board, the executive committee of the board, when the Super League was being discussed, would they really have voted against it? Would they have voted for the club to get left behind? And even if they did vote against it, the others are going to vote for it. So now you're claiming, now you're saying you want veto powers to have any kind of say in things. So you want two fans that don't own any of the club, that don't have any qualification to make these decisions, to have veto power over the greater good of the club against the owners who've done, whether you like them or not, they've done far more good than bad since taking over. They've made mistakes. We know they've made mistakes. The mistakes have been highlighted endlessly. Yet the good stuff they've done rarely gets mentioned. Um, funny how that works. Must not get the clicks and the views. Um, I think they're doing the right thing in that they are standing up for the fans and wanting the fans' voice to get heard. I think asking for seats on the board is absolute nonsense, personally. Absolute nonsense. You're not going to find any argument from me in favour of fans on the board. None. You want to be on the board, you have to buy the club. That's that's just how it is. And I'm not, I'm not doing a Rio Ferdinand and saying like it or lump it, but that is just what it is. There are other ways to go about it. And fan engagement can be a big thing. The club do need to be a bit more transparent about things. But at the same time, 
the club is a business. It needs to be run as a business. For the football side to be successful, the business side has to be successful. It's as simple as that. Now, could you have an advisory board? So similar to to Bayern, who've got a two-board system, could you have an advisory board headed by Kenny that has former players and fans, and maybe they shape the message of the club? Maybe they just give guidance to the executive committee? I think you could do that. I think the creation of a secondary board of trustees of the club, you don't have to call them board members, you can call them trustees. Kenny, uh, Alan Hansen, Robbie Fowler, if he was interested, Kevin Keegan, maybe, people like that, and then three or four fans. And maybe that that's a, a group who meet once a month, once every two months, and talk about, you know, community outreach things. Talk about giving back to the city. Talk about ways to get fans more involved. Tony Barrett actually could be on that as well and head that up because he's at the club already. We know he's a fan. He's a long-time writer. He's a very intelligent man. You know, you could have... You could do something like that. That, to me, would be far better than a token seat at board meetings. You're not going to get a, a seat on the board. That's just not going to happen. You're certainly not going to get an executive seat. That's not going to happen. You're fooling people if you think... You're, you're, you're flat out lying to people if you're making them think that it's a realistic thing. But they may give you access to the meetings, but nothing will get discussed. Can't be. Because you're just going to go back and broadcast it to however many members, because that's what your role is going to be. So... I think they're doing the right thing. I just think they're going about it the wrong way. Um, YNWA Foodie asks, would you keep Harvey Elliott in the squad next year or loan him out again? I would loan him out again. I would loan him to a Bundesliga team and let him get top flight experience. Uh, winner uh, at loser underscore underscore 70. Will the Super League ever happen? I don't know, but it'll get brought back up again. If that's for certain, it will get brought back up again. It may happen. If it does happen, it'll have to be planned properly. Um, someone asked a good question about players that change the game. Okay, so I would say Beckenbauer changed the game, kind of created the ball-playing, ball-carrying centre-back. I think Zanetti changed the game in that he was a playmaker from right back who interran pretty much everything through and teams had to man-mark. I think Roberto Carlos changed the game in, in just the way he played left back. I think Messi's done a lot to change the game. I think Messi as a false nine. Messi as an inverted forward. The main goal scorer being a wide player, that type of thing. I think that has had a big effect on football as a whole. You look back at people like Puskas and, and you know guys of that era, and they made changes to the game, and it's just hard to quantify what those were because we weren't. I wasn't around at that point, but you can see. 
definitely patterns of football that changed after that. Defences became defense became more of a priority for a lot of teams because of that Hungarian team and then that Real Madrid team the Puskas was part of because of how incredibly potent they were in attack teams had to become more defensive so I do think things like that change the game but football is cyclical football changes constantly but football never changes at all we'll see Years of a team of of teams playing one up front, then it goes to two up front, then it's three up front, then it's back to two up front, then it's one up front, and number ten is not a thing, and now it's a thing again, and then it's not a thing again. Sweepers come and go, three at the back comes and goes. Football changes, but just reverts back to itself. So, a lot of times, I think managers change the game more than players. Like I think Maradona changed the game in that I think it became because he was he's so good, he was the best player in the world, but the rules of the game allowed what can only be described as assaults to occur on him on a regular basis. The rules had to be changed. Um we've seen the game become softer. Now it's a good thing and a bad thing, but it that started with Maradona because of the kicking he was getting and because of the negative impact it had on his career. Uh we saw it with, with the real Ronaldo as well, like defensive rules got changed because of him. He's a player that changed the game because we saw we saw Spanish teams play a much deeper line for, for 12 months while he was there. Much deeper lines. Teams defending their own six-yard box, alone their own 18-yard box because they were terrified of him running in behind or him dribbling through them. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a list of players, but I think Beckenbauer is one of the most stark ones because of how much he changed. Cruyff is another. The idea of being multi-positional, the idea of positionless football, the idea that just because your name is written somewhere on a team sheet doesn't mean that's the, the part of the field you need to occupy. Um, Michael Michael Mushroom. Um, is Phil Foden the most naturally gifted English midfielder not called Steven Gerrard? Since Gaza, I would say Jack Wilshere's probably in that conversation. I think Ravel Morrison is in that conversation. But yeah, he probably is. He probably, he probably is. He may, as in terms of natural talent, like footballing talent, not physical ability. Gerard was a physical freak. Like, Gerard was incredibly powerful, incredibly quick. Much bigger than than Foden. Um, I think in terms of football, pure God-given footballing ability, Foden might be more talented than Gerard in that regard. But Gerard had that physical side to his game that Foden doesn't have. I just think it's incredible that there's a 20-year-old called Phil. I just can't get over the fact that somebody... In the year 2000, they looked at a child and thought, Phil. That's cruel. My dad's Phil. But he's he's near 70. So, you know. Uh, will not Matthew Buck at Matty B743. Will Norwich stay up next season? 
I hope so. I really do hope so. I like Daniel Farka. I like Norwich as a club. I think there is a lot to be admired about how they go about their business. But I just think they were so cheap and stingy when they got the last time that I worry they're going to do the same this time. And if they are, I don't see that they can stay up. I don't see that they'll have enough quality, uh, particularly in defence. They've got really talented players. I also don't think you can just rely on Timo Pukki as your, your main goal scorer. Um, okay, who do you think some of the most... This is Isaac Gilding. Who do you think some of the most underrated players of the last 20 years are? Underrated players... I think Aspilicueta is incredibly underrated. I genuinely think that there was a, a couple of year spell where he was the best defender in the league. He was great at left back, great at right back. Conte put him in a back three and he was absolutely fantastic. Um, it tends to be a lot of defenders. Like, Diego Godin, massively underrated. Diego Godin was the best defender in the world. And people were talking about Sergio Ramos and Jerome Boateng and Matt Hummels and Gerard Piquet and all these guys that couldn't defend to save their lives. All of these chaps that just relied on someone else covering them or their own athleticism but they made up for it by being really good on the ball. They're really, really good on the ball. Credit to them. Better footballers than Godin. Not a patch on them defensively. I would say Chiellini's another one like that. I mean, Benucci was a good, a very good defender as well. But got the height because he was great on the ball. Chiellini was just a pure defender. I would have loved to have seen Godin and Chiellini play together. The the most underrated player of that kind of group at Juve, though, was Barzagli, the other defender who played on the right of that back three. He was super underrated. Um, it was actually, it was almost shameful how often he got left out of the conversation regarding underrated players or regarding, you know, top class players. Um, Michael Carrick, massively underrated player. Michael Carrick was a great midfield player. Brilliant positionally, excellent on the ball, super intelligent. Always overlooked. Always overlooked. But a, a top, top midfield player who has five Premier League titles and Champions League win to his name. Um... I'd say Gareth Barry was underrated for part of his career and then became very overrated. I did like him, but I think he, I think he was had spells of being both. Ricardo Carvalho, uh, hugely underrated, carried John Terry, made John Terry a defender. And John Terry, people say, is the best Premier League defender of all time, despite being, at best, the third best Chelsea defender of the Premier League era behind Carvalho. And Desai. Um, let me think. 
I'd say Zabaleta also falls into the underrated category. Zabaleta was was the best right back in England for a few years, but because he wasn't flashy, Kyle Walker got the hype, Glenn Johnson got the hype, but Pablo Zabaleta was just superior to both of them, um, and it wasn't really close. Um, Gilberto Silva as a holding midfielder for sure. Gilberto Silva was just. He's literally a wall. He just presented himself as a wall in midfield and nobody could get by him. And he freed Vieira up to go and do more destructive things in the final third. And I thought Vieira had his best seasons alongside um, alongside Gilberto Silva. Brad Friedel, I think, is worth a mention as a goalkeeper. Casey Keller, another one. I thought both of those American goalkeepers were very, very good. Often overlooked when people talk about great defenders. Graham Lasseau was a very good left-back who often got overlooked. Um, that's that's about it. That's, off, that's about all I can think of for now. Um, I think there is one more. Let me see. Oh, there's two more. Uh, Mr. Feeling All Right asks... Do you think Sancho is at all realistic if Mane were to leave and if they deal the Polish wonder kid the other way? What would you, would you do a deal of that nature? I know you've talked about Rafinha and you like him. Um, I, I would rather Sancho to Rafinha. I think Rafinha might be... Rafinha would be a great signing. Liverpool would be very lucky to have Rafinha. He's a fantastic player. But I think Sancho, just the upside. I mean, what Sancho's going to become is incredible. I don't think United will sign him because I don't think United will spend that type of money on one player given that they have top four football. I think United have other needs, bigger needs, centre-back, holding midfield that will take up most of their money. Um, if 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 Mane goes, I think Sancho is 100% realistic. Um, I don't even think they'd need to sell to, to give them the Polish kid. There's other players that Dortmund want that Liverpool have like Matip, like Naby Keita um, so perhaps there's a deal to be found there even if Mane doesn't go I, st- I still think it's a realistic thing I genuinely do um, okay one more oh, uh, Barton underscore 22 is Charlie Adam one of the three worst FSG related signings no Andy Carroll Pebbles Lovren, Adam Lallana. That's it. Charlie Adam cost seven million. We got four million back from. And Adam was actually he was okay. He wasn't good, but he was all right. But we had a good left side centre back, and we spent twenty million on Lovren, a left side centre back, when we needed a right side centre back. We had a good cre- a, a really good creative midfielder. What we needed was a goal scorer, a nine or a wide forward who could score goals. And instead, we wasted 25 million on Adam Lallana and got nothing for him when he left, having had three good months in six years. They're the three worst. Markovic is up there. Balotelli's up there. Downing is up there. But they're the three. 
Downing, Balotelli, Markovic, all worse than Lalana. Nobody's worse than Lovren. All worse than Lalana, but it's about timing. It's about what we needed at the time, and Lalana wasn't what we needed. Um, yeah, last question then is again, it's Adam Hanlon. And he says, okay, I'm being greedy, but there's lots of players been linked with moves right now. Where do you think the following should go? Okay, he's gone Ivan Tony. Um, Ivan Tony would be perfect for Brighton. If Brighton could get uh, the money together to buy him, and I think they have the money, um, given what they were prepared to pay on Darwin Nunes last year, I think Brighton would be perfect. Michael Elise of Reading. Crystal Palace. I would love to see him on one flank and Ezzy on the other, both cutting in. I think that's ideal. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. I think he makes sense for Aston Villa. A runner from midfield. Another attacking player. Another inventive player. A player can offer something different. A game changer. Someone that gives you a change of pace. I think Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain to Villa would make sense. Naby Keita. We know he can dominate the Bundesliga. So Dortmund would make sense, but that would have to be in a Sancho deal because otherwise Dortmund couldn't afford him. The other option, maybe he goes to Serie A. I think he would absolutely dominate Serie A. Maybe you could find a deal where he goes and Sergei Milinkovic-Savage comes back. For me, I don't know about clubs, but I think Bundesliga or Serie A for Naby. Whoever can afford him, price is going to be an issue. Liverpool are going to want probably 30 million, 35 from. They paid 58. I think they'll want to recoup a decent amount of money. You don't see teams in Germany typically spend massive. And I don't know that the teams in Italy who could afford him would have need for him. But I do think he would be absolutely sensational in that Lazio team. Uh, Takumi Minamino, stay at Southampton. I think he's perfect for Ralph. Uh, Reese Nelson's an interesting one. Do like him. Talented player. Not sure what his best position is. If Crystal Palace sells Zaha and want to play a front two, I think Nelson off a number nine would be a good signing. London boy, I think it makes sense. Tammy Abraham, I've talked about this before. Aston Villa. Abraham, Watkins at one side and Grealish the other. That's excellent. That's an excellent front three. I think then if you had, say, Oxlade-Chamberlain, Douglas Louise, and John McGinn as your midfield three, because Ox can go wide on the right, Grealish can drop wide on the left, and you can split to a 4-4-2 when you have possession. I think that works for everybody. Uh, Alan St. Maximum. I hope he stays at Newcastle. If he doesn't, if he wants a move, I would say Spurs would be a really good fit. I think you put him in the front three. With Kane and Son, I think he'd do really well with less pressure. Pats and Daka, I love the idea of him going to Leipzig. I think it's the perfect fit. Um, Elias Chell from uh, QPR. I would say West Brom. Going down, probably going to lose Pereira. Probably going to lose a bunch of midfield players that are on loan there. Maitland and Niles Gallagher. I think he'd be a really good fit there. Um, good player. I do hope he stays at Crystal Palace, though. Uh, Theon Cup Miners. 
this is a tough one because you have to play a certain style, I think, to, to have him be really effective in your team. I also think you need to have a specific type of partner for him. I would say Lille could make sense. If they keep Samari, I think Coop Miners and Samari would be a really good pairing. So that's where I'd put him. And then Donny van de Beek. Donny van de Beek is an interesting one. Doesn't fit at United. We know that. He'd be a really good fit at Liverpool. Donny van de Beek would actually be an ideal fit in the midfield three for Liverpool. But other than that, I think he'd make a lot of sense for Atletico Madrid. With the way they're playing this season, I think he'd make sense there. I don't think it's the ideal fit, but I think he'd make sense there. I'm going to say Liverpool. I actually think he's he, the best fit for him would be Liverpool. I think you put him with Thiago and Fabinho and let him go and be the attacking midfielder. You'll get all the work rate from him. You'll get the defensive side, but you free him up in attack. Have him play off the ball, use his movement, his off-ball running. Absolutely. Donny van der Beek will be ideal for Liverpool. Carl Matchett called that two years ago. Um, so that's it. That is all the questions. That is the show for today. It is a bit of a long one, so apologies for that. But uh, you'll forgive me, of course. I will, uh, I'll be back tomorrow with Mr. Drinkle. Thank you to Guy. Thank you to Foxhaunt. And thank you to you, as always, for listening. Do keep telling your friends and uh, helping the show grow a bit. That's all I need. Cheers. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.